We are in the book of Esther. If you're new here at Grace, we go through books of the Bible, and we're working through the Old Testament book of Esther. We've got a couple more Sundays after this week that we'll move through Esther, uh, and then we're privileged that one of our, our members who it preaches at, at a number of different churches who fills the pulpit, David, David Goff, will be preaching uh, in mid-March, and so we're looking forward to that, and then it'll be, before you know it, Palm Sunday and Easter, and the next series after this will be one on the parables. Um, we'll take up some of the parables of Jesus Christ. But Esther is where we are this morning. There are, as you think about the book of Esther, as you think of many Old Testament sort of narrative books, there are great chasms that separate us from what we're reading in terms of time and culture. We're 2,500 years removed now from the time of Esther. We are in the 21st century Western culture as opposed to ancient Persian society. We have the difference of, um, I think most of us have never experienced living under a dictatorial monarchy where what the king says is absolute and, and, and everybody must obey the king. And, and there's also the difference as we read the book of Esther and on some level, we're looking at a queen. We're looking at the queen of the Persian Empire. And it's possible that we look and we say, well, this is, it's hard to relate to some of these things, time and culture and position in life. And in that sense, maybe it's a little bit different from where we are. And yet, so much of what we're reading in Esther, so much of the ways in which God is working in Esther falls under the category of fairly ordinary things in life, things that that we can appreciate and understand things that we've experienced or we've heard others talk about. We're, we're gonna see it today. There's a guy who's dealing with insomnia. He's just having a hard time sleeping. There's a guy who is just the, uh, the, the local braggart. I mean, he just loves talking about himself. He is arrogant and he loves recognition and he loves drawing attention to himself. You, you, you may know someone that you're thinking of, even as I'm describing that individual. There's the woman who has a sense that there's something in the universe that, that seems to, to guide things or control things. There's some kind of fate in the universe that she can't really define, but, but it seems to be powerful in what it does in people's lives. I've said it to you before, Pastor Stewart has brought it up. As Old Testament books go, Esther is quite remarkable in its lack of the miraculous. No seas are parted. No healings take place. No prophets declare this is the word of God. God is, fact, is in fact unseen in the book of Esther. And yet, the evidence of his hand is everywhere in this story, and there are spiritual lessons that abound. Just today... We're going to see some, some particular lessons in terms of sinful cravings that can lead to destruction. We're going to see some insight into what the world would call coincidences that sort of conspire together to save a life. And then we're going to hear from a person, that one that I alluded to before, who, who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, but still believes there's, there's something at work that, that's beyond what's going on in our everyday circumstances and that can even seal a person's fate. So Esther chapter five, just to refresh quickly on where we are in terms of this story. This is rooted in history. You can look up the king of Persia. Uh, Ahasuerus is as he's described here. Xerxes as he's often seen um, if you go and, and do your Wikipedia search. Um, he deposes his queen 
early in the story of Esther because she refuses to obey a direct order from him. And he holds this, his servants guide him in holding this sort of uncouth kind of beauty contest to, to find her replacement. And the woman who becomes queen is a young Jew, a person who by all rights in the midst of the Persian empire would never ascend to this kind of position. And because of the manner in which the process is uh, done to bring her to, to, to that authority, it's really based on the king's attraction to her and he finds her most beautiful and she becomes Queen Esther. Another character that we, we see a lot of in here is, is a relative of Esther, and, and his name is Mordecai. He's a cousin of Esther, but he's also, by virtue of adoption, he was Esther's guardian. He was the one caring for and advising Esther and protecting her. And, and, and he is now, it seems, more engaged in the story. As she becomes queen, he seems to be more influential, having some sort of role, perhaps, in the king's administration, not entirely clear. And then the other main player, the one that we'll see today, would be largely Mordecai and then a man named Haman, who is higher in rank in the Persian government uh, than Mordecai is. He is, in fact, the man. He is the, the king's right-hand man. He has been elevated to this position of great authority. The king has many advisors, but Haman is the one. And Haman, as we're going to see, loves this position. Haman loves power loves to be recognized, expects to be recognized. He is, he is that guy that is just, everything he's ever dreamed of has to do with authority and power, and he is there. But Mordecai is a problem for Haman. Mordecai is the one person that Haman struggles with because Mordecai won't bow to Haman. When Haman's out in public, he expects that carrying the authority of the king, people re respect him, they bow to him, and he demands this from people, Mordecai, will not do it, will not stand up when Haman walks by, will not bow down. Haman, as we've already seen in the book of Esther, hatched a plot. He learned Mordecai's ethnicity. He understood that Mordecai is a Jew. He apparently did not make the connection from Mordecai to Queen Esther, but Haman goes to the king and he decides his way of getting at Mordecai is to go after the Jewish people. And so he goes to the king and he says, there is this rebellious people. They do not obey the commands of your kingdom. And I think you should issue an edict to destroy them. And that's what the king does. King goes along with it. It's an edict to annihilate the Jewish people from the Persian kingdom. Mordecai, as we saw last week, believes that Esther, his cousin, his daughter in some sense, that, that she's been placed for such a time as this, that she is there near to the king in the palace at Susa, and, and he urges her to be, as Pastor Stewart said last week, a mediator, to be the one who would go before the king and plead for the salvation, the rescue of the Jewish people. We, we must understand, we, we think king, queen, we think husband, wife, we figure that was probably a private discussion they would have at night, and yet the reality is even the queen could not simply enter the king's presence in the Persian Empire. We know that from historical records, that even she was not considered one of the few and, and roughly six or seven advisors who had that access to the king. Anybody else coming to him uninvited ran the risk of what happened to Queen Vashti, being deposed or worse. And so there's risk involved for her, but she took the first step. We left off last week. Esther does go boldly to the king. She says, all I'm asking for is, is that you would come to a banquet. I would like to have a feast for you and for Haman. The king obliges. 
So we're in chapter five, just gonna pick up in verses six through eight just to catch us up and then we'll move along in the passage. Esther five, six. While drinking the wine, the king asked Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you, whatever you want, even to half the kingdom will be done. Esther answered, this is my petition and my request. If I have found favor in the eyes of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and perform my request, may the king and Haman come to the banquet I will prepare for them. Tomorrow I will do what the king has asked. It's kind of curious. The writer doesn't tell us why. She has them come to this banquet. He says, whatever you want, up to half the kingdom. And she says, one more banquet tomorrow. I want you to come to a feast that I'll prepare for you and Haman tomorrow. So either we could surmise she's mustering up courage to, to make the big ask and she needs another day. She's asked them, Mordecai, to tell people to fast. And so there's some sense in which she's believing that something more is going on outside. The other potential here is she simply wants to build her case, build a little anticipation. If the king were to reiterate exactly what he just said, I'll give you anything up to half the kingdom, it makes her, her situation that much stronger. It's that much harder for the king to deny whatever she asks. All right, so that's where we are. They've, they've come to the end of this feast. Chapter five, verse nine. That day Haman left, full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at his presence, Haman was filled with rage toward Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she prepared. I am invited again tomorrow to join her with the king. Still, none of this satisfies me, since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. The advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Haman's not just the real-life villain in this story and not just the, the, the tool of Satan that Satan's using to go after the Jewish people. But I would suggest to you that, that Haman is for us just a glaring case study in the consuming, destructive power of sinful cravings. The, the, the eat-at-you-and-destroy-you power of succumbing to your desires. Haman had just had one of the best days of his life. The queen invites him for a feast. He is in the room, the only guest. There's probably nobody in the empire that can recount a story like this, where he is having a meal with the king and the queen, and he's gonna do it again tomorrow. For all he knows, this is gonna become lunch every day. It'll be Haman and the king and the queen, and they will be best buds, and it'll be like a, almost a co-regency, you know, the three of them together, just, just meeting together. And in Haman's mind, couldn't get any better. He's got a story to tell. He gathers his wife, his friends, and he recounts all of, all of his greatness to them. And yet, all it takes to completely wreck his joy is one man who won't stand up and honor him. All of this going on in life, and Mordecai just throws him into a tailspin. 
Haman is just a tick below ruling the kingdom. He is second in line, a most envied position, and yet it says he went into a rage because one man wouldn't bow to him. You probably heard me read this or one of the other pastors read this before, but I'll read it again. James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. Unsatisfied cravings, unmet desires can destroy you. Instead of being grateful for what you have, for what God has supplied, it can be so easy to focus on what I lack. Instead of hearing perhaps words of appreciation or kindness, what we hear sometimes is we hear that one small statement of criticism, and what do we remember? I, I can tell you this very honestly as a pastor who stood at the door most of my adult life. I, I, I said this to, to people who are out in the working world. You, you all don't get the benefit at five o'clock when the work shift ends of standing at your door and having people walk by and say, thank you so much for your work. Thank you for what you do. I understand that that is an enormous privilege for which I am amazed sometimes. But I will tell you, that every now and then you'll get that one question or that one comment, and it's not meant even ill. It's just like, what about this? And you didn't think of that. And so what do you go home thinking about all afternoon? <sighs> I missed that. Why didn't I think about that? Here's Haman. Rather than just saying, I had a great day today. Rather than for us, just recounting God's loving kindness. This is what God has done. This is how he's blessed. He's given me things that I, 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 beyond what, what I could actually desire. Instead, what is my heart doing? It's churning out more desires. It's churning out more things that I think I want, things that I need. Some of them I can say, ah, oh, that's just a dream and, and, and that's not a big deal. But you know the ones that really hang us up are the ones that we think we deserve and somebody's messed them up. That, that I am where I am today because somewhere back here somebody messed up the plan. Somebody did something that, that harmed me or that hurt my work situation or did something and, and that's the one I can't let go of because I'm still not where I want to be because of that. And we struggle mightily sometimes with those things. Sometimes just simple legitimate desires we turn into these monstrous cravings. The, you know, the, the I've, I've come home from work. Can't you all just be happy when I come in the door? Can't you be pleasant when I come in the door? Why do we have to be yelling? Why can't I have a spouse? Why can't I have a child? Why can't I have appreciation? Why can't I be heard? And we get caught on these things. And some of our most legitimate desires can morph into cravings for which others receive our wrath because they've somehow, in our minds, gotten in the way. Haman's the extreme example. Not a, a believer in Yahweh by any means, but reminding us, even as believers in Jesus Christ, that we, we do live in the flesh. We still struggle with desires. We still have our days when things have gone really, really well, and one careless comment has ruined it. We still have those times when we have had a wonderful weekend. 
it has gone well. We've had family. We've had enjoyment. Worship, corporate worship was great. Sunday afternoon was relaxing. And Monday morning, I come into work, and there is some chaos because some person at work did something wrong. And all I want to do is get that person because they have ruined my peace. They've, they've robbed me of what was so good. Haman's way of dealing with this anger that's boiling inside of him is a, a great case study for us. He gathers around him people who will encourage his anger. He gathers around him people who will commiserate with his fragile ego. He wants to hear from people who will, who will sympathize with him and who won't dare confront him. Don't, don't address my anger. I, we do this once in a while, right? When, when that person in well-meaning tries to offer correction and, and we don't want it right now. We just want to be angry. We just want to be left stewing in our desire. Don't take away my right to be angry. Don't tell me my cravings are running amok. Just agree with me. Haman's counselors take this a whole step further, not just listening to him and nodding their heads, but instead of helping him to think differently, instead of questioning him and saying, Haman, friend, slow down, man. This isn't all bad. Life is okay. Stop and think about it. Put, put things in perspective, right? Just anything. It wouldn't even have to be. We're not talking Christian New Testament counsel here. We're just talking, tell them to let it go, right? There's Disney counsel for you if you want. And what do they do? Revenge. Yeah, you're right, Haman. You should get them. Listen, can I say to you, if you have friends, relatives, advisors who repeatedly give you unbiblical counsel when you are in times of difficulty and hardship, stop going to them for counsel. If you have people in your life who are speaking not the word of God, but speaking what your ears want to hear and just speaking worldly wisdom to you in time of crisis, pause before you seek out any advice for them, especially in times of difficulty. We need brothers and sisters in Christ who will lovingly ask questions of us and help us to examine our hearts and to look at our desires and to cause us to think about where we are and what we should be grateful for and help us to put on Christ-like humility. It, I, I mentioned James 4 earlier, and we could certainly go on James 4, and we won't this morning for the sake of time, but, but the message of James 4 is draw near to the Lord. Come, come, to, come to Jesus Christ and be humble. Put away your pride and draw near to him. Haman's wife and friends just say, Build the tallest gallows you can build, hang Mordecai on it, and leave his body there for all to see. Most commentators and historians say that the 75-foot-tall gallows is probably more of an exaggerated euphemism in much the same way that we would say, you know, just build it to the skies. Uh, it was just, it, it, it's not likely that in the few hours from then till the next morning that they built something seven stories tall. But the point was, build a gallows high enough so that when you hang Mordecai on it, it not only brings you victory, but it brings humiliation to Mordecai and to his family, and it sends a message to everyone who sees Mordecai hanging there that you're the man. You, you've got the power, and so it'll be a great object lesson for everyone. All right, before we read on, we're going to go into chapter 6, but we just need to remember something that happened previously in Esther, and Pastor Stewart read it about two weeks ago. It's the end of chapter 2. 
Mordecai, again, Esther's relative guardian by adoption, had been privy to an assassination plot against the king. And so Esther 2.22, when Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther. She told the king on Mordecai's behalf when the report was investigated and verified both men were hanged on the gallows. This event was recorded in the historical record in the king's presence, okay? Brief but significant event from history. Mordecai effectively saved the king's life. And so this account is put down in writing in the historical record, but that as far as we could see, this is the end of the story. Um, whether Esther mentioned that it came from Mordecai or whatever, for whatever reason, nothing more is said or done concerning Mordecai as any kind of hero. All right, so now let's re return back now to chapter six. This is the night, the night after. So Haman and the king have gone to the feast. Esther said, we'll have another one tomorrow. Haman's angry. He's going to have Mordecai hung the next day. And so, but it's that night in between. Esther 6, verse 1. That night sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired what honor and special recognition have been given to Mordecai for this act. The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. The king asked, who is in the court? Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai in the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's attendants, you see where this is going, huh? The king's attendants answered him, Haman's there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered and the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Can you imagine Haman's heart skipping a beat at this moment? Woo! Haman thought to himself, who is it that the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the man the king wants to honor, here we go, get ready, take a list, king. Have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse that the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head, put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials, have them clothe the man the king wants to honor, parade him on the horse through the city square and call out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. All right, let's pause here for just a second. King Ahasuerus, we, we've been reading about him since chapter one. And one of the things you should catch about the king that, that we've, at least the writer of Esther wants us to see is he's a fairly malleable person. By that I mean, he doesn't seem to be one who leads. He seems to be one who likes advisors to tell him what to do. We've seen that get him in trouble. He's surrounded by these clowns who sometimes give bad advice, who sometimes make wrong requests, evil requests, as in, in Haman's case. And what do we always see, I, I think consistently so far through Esther, the king says, okay, we'll do it. I'm not even gonna think about the consequences. I'm not gonna ask you any questions. You said it, we'll do it. And so when Haman comes at the crack of dawn, he is coming to secure Mordecai's death. We've got every reason to believe that Haman has all the assurance in the world that he's going to say, I want this man put to death. He's a terrible man who doesn't honor me. And the king is likely gonna say, Whatever, if that's what you want to do, take care of it. And then the king couldn't sleep. And so maybe he wanted to hear some stories of his own greatness, or maybe he was just like you and I, and he turned on his little Audible app and had a book playing, knowing that it would drone on and eventually he'd fall asleep. Um, some of you who maybe not, don't care for history, you're thinking, yep, I get it. The king said, just read history to me. Oh man, that'll, you could read 
I don't know, you could read science or math to me and probably do the same thing, because that's just my areas of just, I'm lost, just send me to sleep. And so the king says, just read. And along the way, there's this snippet they read from five years earlier. It's not the beginning of his reign. It's not the most recent point in his reign. It's five years earlier when Mordecai foils his plot to kill the king, and it catches the king's attention. It's long been forgotten at this point. Life has gone on, and, and the king says, curious, what, what did we do for Mordecai? He saved my life. How did we honor him? He wasn't honored. Nothing. We didn't, we didn't do anything. And once again, the king, who apparently doesn't think well for himself, instead of saying, okay, we're going to honor him, Let, here's what we're going to do, says, I need somebody to tell me what to do in this situation. And so who's here? What advisor is going to tell me now what to do with Mordecai? And just so happens that Haman is there ready to talk about Mordecai. You, you put all this together and it, it just so happened that Ahasuerus couldn't sleep. It just so happened that when they opened this large historical record of his reign, they land somewhere in the seventh year of his reign. And somehow on this one particular incident, it just so happens that Haman, of all people, showed up early that morning and is standing there as the advisor when the king wants to know what to do. I said to you at the beginning of this, each of these would be construed as quite ordinary on their own. Lack of sleep, opening a book. You, you, maybe you've done this, you know, we're devotional time and you flip through and go, there, I'll read that. I don't advise that as a devotional means for study, but you may have done that. And apparently they opened and began reading. You ask friend for advice. Well, all of those seem rather ordinary, but the outcome of them together is consequential because it saves Mordecai's life. And all of it falls in a story where the name of God is not even mentioned. And so from the world's perspective, Esther's story is a litany of so-called coincidences, just a bunch of fortunate things that all seem to come together to save a life. But friends, that is not why the Jewish rabbis, when they read the book of Esther, decided that this needed to be included as one of the Hebrew scriptures, that this was fit to be in the writings alongside Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Ruth and, Ecclesi and, and Lamentations, I should say. All of those books together are the writings and Esther is right there. Because Esther, the rabbis understood, taught generations of Jews, this is how your God saved you when the Persian Empire ruled. This is how, in a way that no one even saw clearly at the time or heard from God at the time, this is how Yahweh kept his promise to protect you and defend you and to preserve you when the Persian Empire planned your genocide. This is what God was doing. Through the insomnia of Ahasuerus, from the pages that the servants turned to, to the timing of Haman's arrival, all of it is directed by the specific plan and purpose of God. This is God's providence. We talk about providence, meaning that God is always ensuring that everything happens because he wills it. He wills it before it will happen, and he wills it as it will happen, in the manner in which it will happen. There are no coincidences in how Esther became queen. We've read that, and you could, you'd have to lump that one in there too. Or, or, or coincidence in her decision to say, 
let's wait one more day for that feast before I lay this before you. It was all God's design. The things that we're reading did not happen because the stars aligned or because there was karma in the universe and somehow it all just worked out magically. Over and over, the Bible declares there is one personal, sovereign God who made you and I and who runs the universe for his glory and blesses us with the opportunity to be stewards within that universe. So the happenings in your life whether they feel fortunate or unfortunate, are not random and didn't happen by chance. There is a loving creator who, especially for his children, is working all things together for good for them that love him and are called according to his purpose. He is at work in the midst of the sleepless night. He is at work in all of these usual common things that happen where he is orchestrating his will. And, and simultaneously, Colossians says he is holding, he is upholding the universe by his great power. So for you and I, that, that means, one, that we function as responsible, accountable human beings. Free moral agents is what I, I, I would say there. In other words, when I say that, I mean Haman was not a robot where he was just, you know, marching to orders that God had given him. Haman was acting out of the desires of his heart. Haman wanted power and recognition, and Mordecai was thwarting it, and so Haman acted out of that. Haman wanted power and recognition, so when it came to honoring someone and thinking it was him, he said, here's what to do. He was acting exactly according to his nature and what he desired. And so we are responsible, but we can also have great peace and comfort knowing that we cannot escape or fall out of God's good plan, that, that God is still ruling and he is still good. And so whether you're awake in the middle of the night or whether you're in the midst of some terrible family crisis or whether you're just at peace and, and life is going really well, God is in control and history is moving by his good design and, and in an unfailing way toward the place of bringing the greatest glory to him. We have that hope. There is no coincidence involved. All right, let's pick the story back up. Haman has answered the king arrogantly. All right, here's how I would want to be honored. Dress me in a king's garment, ride me on a king's horse. Can you imagine the excitement rising in his voice when he's describing what he wants to see done here and how he's just like giddy at this point? Like, oh man, let me tell you how we should honor this guy. And then somebody's going to lead that horse and proclaim, this is how the king honors the man that he wants to honor. Oh, all right, verse 10. The king told Haman, hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square calling out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Wow. That is the king's command. Those are imperatives back in verse 10. Hurry and do just as you propose. The king is ordering Haman to do something that had to be crushing. Can you imagine how staggering the humiliation is for Haman to have to put that garment on Mordecai and help him up on the horse and then lead him around and praise him? 
Pastor Stewart mentioned it last week, that one of the recurring themes in Esther is this idea of reversal. Mordecai seems destined for his destruction, that, that before the day is out, in fact, before the morning is over, Mordecai will be hung and, and he will be destroyed at the hands of Haman with the blessing of the king. And instead, Mordecai is given the highest honor from the king at the hands of Haman. It's just a remarkable turn in what God does in all of this. And it needs to teach us the fact that Haman, the right-hand man in the kingdom, one of the most powerful men in the Persian empire, had no ultimate control over what was happening. He schemed and he strategized and he built the gallows and he knew what he wanted to do, but for reasons he didn't even fully understand, his whole plan was not just blown up, it was completely turned upside down on him. Something or someone else was at work in a way that Haman couldn't even fathom. There was something more powerful going on and we don't know how quickly Haman recognized it, but his wife and his advisors recognized it pretty quickly. Look at verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful, with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. That's far as we're going to go this morning. Just a little over a year ago, Forbes published this in a column, said, The year 2022 will no doubt be remembered as a year of uncertainty. Remember that? Uncertainty of just the last few years. Over the last 12 months, we've, had, we've experienced many fluctuations and periods of sudden and drastic change. Wasn't that long ago, right? COVID, wars, inflation, all the stuff, and, and uncertainty was sort of the word of the day. Didn't know what's gonna, don't know what's gonna happen with the economy, don't know what's gonna happen with jobs, don't know what's gonna happen with schools, don't, don't, don't know anything. It just seems all so wildly uncertain. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, should not need such a lesson, but it is still a marvelous reminder for us and a lesson for the world that despite all of the technological advances we've made, despite all of the wealth and power of the world, when it comes right down to it, we do not have the control we think that we have sometimes. That, that there is something else that is in control and Haman's closest advisors and even his own wife recognized, something's changed here, buddy. <laughs> and, and can't really quite put our finger on it, but this isn't gonna go well for you at all. What changed didn't simply have to do with Mordecai's ethnicity. That, that's a point that they make to him that since he's Jewish, and that's, that's significant, but I, I want you to think about it because the day before, it says in chapter five, Mordecai the Jew, so I, I don't think they were ignorant of the fact that Mordecai was Jewish when they came up with the grand idea of building the gallows and hanging him on it. So it's not necessarily that they suddenly said, oh wait, you didn't tell us that part. If you think about it, throughout history, and certainly in the Persian Empire, they, they would have been well aware of this. Throughout history, Gentile nations had gone up against Israel on many occasions. We have the records in the Old Testament of the times that there had been war and persecution and attacks and attempts to, to go after the, 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 the Jewish people. And, and there were times when those Gentile nations, from the earthly perspective, succeeded. The, the um, Assyrians the Babylonians, even the Persians to some extent. They, they are the ruling empire. So there is a sense in which 
yeah, we've, we've defeated the Jewish people before. And, and so I, I don't think there was fear that day before when they said you should just take Mordecai's life. I don't think they, they paused at that moment. But then everything turned around. Suddenly on the very morning that Mordecai was to secure, uh, Haman was to secure Mordecai's death, suddenly it's all changed and now Haman is parading Mordecai around and honoring him. It's not just that things sort of went a little awry, it's that they completely flipped. And Zeresh and the others quickly realized that what happened, this is not some series of unfortunate coincidences. There is, there is something else going on and what was unfolding before their eyes would have been also something they would have understood from history as well. That more than a few times when enemies went up against Israel and Israel was outgunned and outmanned, the enemies were crushed. It was the story of the Pharaoh in Egypt and his whole army in the Red Sea. There was the, um, the, the, the city of, of um, Jericho and the walls. There were the Philistines. There was Haman's own relative was a king of the Amalekites who would have been completely wiped out by Israel had it not been for disobedience on the part of Israel's King Saul. And so there's, there's also this recognition when this amazing reversal happens that elevates Mordecai to royal status almost and, and, and sinks Haman to be the point of being his servant, that even his own family can now say, you've begun to fall in a way that is irreversible. That, that, there's no breaking your fall here. You will be defeated in this for certain. Your downfall is certain. Ben Franklin, right, left us the great quote in life, there are only two things that are certain and they are in this world, nothing is certain but, there you go. You could argue the taxes point at some level, but I think we'd all agree, at least theologically, the death Port part is absolutely right. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto a man to die once and then to face judgment. So we know that. Book of Hebrews also speaks about other certainties. It speaks about the certainties of God's promises. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer is recalling how God to Abraham promised, I will bless all nations through you. I will bring blessing to all of the nations through you. And what would that blessing be? That would be through the line of Abraham, a savior, right? A Messiah. And so in Hebrews 6, just in recounting God making that promise to Abraham in the form of a covenant, he said, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Writer of Hebrews is saying, when God met with Abraham and cut that covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, that was God swearing an oath in addition to the fact that God by his nature cannot lie. God, God cannot, and so you've got two things. You've got an oath and you've got the truth that, that God cannot lie. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying to his readers, therefore, if you are anchored in Christ, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, your hope is certain. You have this certain knowledge and unshakable hope that goes beyond this life because God's designs and God's promises are always certain. So when scripture tells us that God the Father made a way to rescue a people for himself, to make them his very own, we can be certain that that's exactly what God would accomplish. 
And he did in Christ. And to you who are trusting in Jesus Christ, Romans 6 verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If your hope is staked on the death of Jesus Christ alone, that you believe that he died for your sin and you are resting in his perfect sacrifice for your sin, Paul says there in Romans you're not only joined to him, united with him in his death, but you can be certain that you will be joined with him in his resurrection. Just as he was raised and is in glory, so too you will be raised and you will be in his presence. There, there, there is, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, there's a very little in life that is certain. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is your savior, if you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again from the grave, you will be saved. In Christ, we have that certainty. Our circumstances will change. Our emotions will change. How people treat us will change. Your health will change. All sorts of things will change. But we have in Christ the unwavering promise of being joined to him forever and having certainty in Christ. And we know that not only because God promises and God cannot lie, not only because Jesus came and he revealed that to us and spoke that truth to us, not only because the New Testament writers then testified of that and, and gave us the, the, not only the testimonies but the teaching in the New Testament, but we know it from stories like Esther. Because Haman was not just going up against one guy who ticked him off. He was, this was not just about Haman versus Mordecai. Haman was trying to take on the very God who promised, I will bring this blessing, this salvation through the line of Abraham. And by going to the king and saying, annihilate the Jews, Haman was standing before God himself and saying, I challenge you. I'm ready to take you on. May not have understood that at the time, but that's what he was doing. And so in the moment when he finally begins to fall, those around him can see there's no rescue for you anymore. This is, this is out of your hands and it's out of ours because you have gone up against something that we can't even understand here and your destruction is certain. I'll finish with something that seems very parallel to this from the New Testament. Remember in the book of Acts, the church is young, Believers are just beginning to proclaim the truths of Jesus Christ. And what are the Jewish religious leaders in Jerusalem trying to do? Squelch it. We, we put to death Jesus, and now we're going to start imprisoning the apostles, and we're going to do whatever we can to stop this. And you'll remember that great scene where the, one of their fellow Pharisees by the name of Gamaliel says, hey guys, wait a minute. Acts 5.38. Here's my advice. I'll tell you. You keep away from these men, speaking about Christians. Let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding, this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there is our certainty. Amen. Let's pray. We love you, Lord. We thank you that for as much as we struggle with certainty, we have a hard time even being certain about our promises and our words. We don't always fulfill all the things we say that we'll do and we are surrounded by uncertainty and 
People treat us in ways that we didn't expect and there's uncertainty and things change in life and health and jobs. We are so thankful that what we are clinging to today is your word that has over thousands of years demonstrated this same consistent truth that Jesus Christ is the rock, that he is the one who gave himself in sacrifice so that those who come to him and cling to him and depend on him will find certainty. Doesn't mean that everything will go well. We know that. We know that there will still be challenges and difficulties, but we also know that we have a hope because this is your work, it's your will that is being carried out. I, I pray for anyone here listening this morning or online who lacks that sense of certainty. I pray that today, Lord, you would help them to see that there is no reason, no need to go through life unsure of what happens at death. Uh, Lord, I know for some there's a, there's a compelling sense that if I'm here this morning going to church, if I put something in the offering box, if I do some good things, I, I just hope that maybe that'll all add up and I'll be able to get to God's presence. Uh, Lord, we, we believe your word is far more clear than that. That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That there is a, a certain hope. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would draw to yourself those who would put their trust fully in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as believers to walk in that certainty with hope amidst a world that can sometimes be chaotic. May we be anchored in our faith and trust in you. God, would you guard us this week from the cravings that would draw us aside from obeying you? Would you help us to listen to to helpful counselors, to turn to your word, to be challenged when need be in our thinking. And ultimately, would you help us to give you the glory and the gratitude for the simple, ordinary things in life that we see your hand in and your blessing in. Help us to be a grateful people. All this we pray in the great name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.